Welcome to Restart Radio, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because unlike most, we do not focus on the new shiny shiny things to buy. We focus on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronics repair events here in London are just the beginning. My name is Ugo Vallauri from the Restart project and I'm joined by my colleague Neil Mather from the Restart team. Hello. And today actually we are talking about a little bit of the shiny shiny new gadgets. No, not really shiny, but we're very excited and happy to have a London based uh, hardware startup here, Beeline. And we have Charlie Bruce and Tom Putnam uh, from Beeline, which is making a very unusual device, a smart compass for cycling. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. yeah. So uh, some people might have heard about your product uh, thanks to uh, crowdfunding campaign and it's been out in the wild for uh, about, about a year now yeah yeah but can you give uh, our listeners a brief overview of what it is exactly yeah sure so it's a really stripped back um, navigation device for cycling um, and it comes with an app so the device straps onto your handlebars quite simply put in where you want to go on the app but then where a normal sat nav will tell you you must turn left in 100 meters, then turn right onto Swan Lane, and it's a series of instructions. This works more like a like a smart compass, as you said. So it's pointing in the in the direction you need to head in, um, and telling you the distance you need the distance left to get there. But it's completely up to you the route you take. Um, so rather than something that's just about efficiently getting you from A to B, it opens you up to explore and and go discover your surroundings um, and pick the route that you fancy. Well, still retaining a point of reference as to what direction your uh, ultimate yeah absolutely goal is. yeah yeah we actually find that it's um often at least as efficient as google maps um sometimes more actually and we are lucky enough to have had a chance to try your device uh neil was actually an official backer of your original campaign and so neil maybe you can tell us a little bit about your experience coming to know this project and uh then becoming a supporter and a user. That's right, yeah. So I backed the uh, original uh, crowdfunding campaign for the device. Um, and I guess I came to it through um, using other navigational systems before where it was kind of this turn-by-turn -turn, uh, navigation system where as a cyclist, you had this app on your phone. Um, you had to uh, get off at regular points to kind of check what was the next route which I needed to take, what was the next turn, and try and remember in advance how, how um, what different uh, turns you needed to take. So I really like the idea of having this kind of smart compass idea where it you just you put in the two points and then it points you in the, the general direction, but you don't need to keep on getting off and checking that you're, you're going uh, in, in the right direction. And I, I have an interest as well. I just sort of keep an eye out for the like interesting pieces of technology, um, especially given it was given that it was cycling based. It was, it was something that I was interested in. Um, and yeah, so I, I backed that Kickstarter campaign and got one of the devices when they original originally shipped uh, the beginning of last year, I believe that was. And I enjoyed using it. I had fun setting it up. I did find 
because of my, uh, I guess, being a casual cyclist, I kind of hit an issue where once I knew the route that I was taking, I didn't mm. kind of return to the device. Um, but that was more kind of from my, my usage pattern as opposed to the device itself. The actual act of being navigated around worked brilliantly, but I very quickly adapted to that one route. Uh, so I didn't use it as much for that purpose for, for future journeys. So uh, Neil mentioned a, a crucial point, the fact that you probably noticed and maybe it was part of your inspiration, people stopping in the middle of the road or on the yeah. side of the road, having to check their journey directions and maybe forgetting, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, was that how you started uh, thinking about this product? Um, yeah, absolutely. It, it all started because um, me and my co-founder, Mark, um, are both we both use our bikes to get around town all the time. Um, we were meeting up for lunch and he turned up late and it was because it got lost. And we just started talking about how frustrating exactly that point is of um, constantly trying to whip your phone out of the traffic lights or riding along, along with one hand or trying to remember what the route the route was, getting lost, stopping, dangerous checking too. it, turning around. Yeah, it's, mm. it's dangerous. And you know, for yourself or you know, I've I've lost at least one phone to dropping it and it going under the bu under the bus, the wheels of a bus. Um, so we just thought it would be it would be so much easier, so much simpler if you just had something on your handlebars that said you need to be heading in this direction. Um, originally, we actually thought of just putting a nice compass on there, um, then thought we could make that point to where you're trying to get to rather than north. Um, so it kind of hones you in um, as you as you ride around. That was how it all started. You you mentioned uh, you know having a phone that goes under a bus, and I guess that is one of the interesting aspects of of your product. The fact that you see a lot of people cycling with very complicated brackets for mm. very expensive smartphones. And uh, I uh, I might not have tested the best product, but I remember feeling like I'm not sure if the moment I get a bump, my phone will jump out and, and break. And so yeah. even the cost of a screen repair, as our listeners know quite well, could be comparable with buying a Beeline product. So. I wonder if that has been one of the reasons that people uh, seem quite interested in in your product. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we sell Beeline for ninety nine pounds, and you know that's about the same as fixing your screen, as you say. Especially fixing your screen plus the bracket to so put it on your bike in the first place. Um, so, so yeah, absolutely. But you've also got as, as not just falling off, but the um, um, you know, what if you leave your if you forget to take it off at the end? Of a ride, you know. Now, if you have an iPhone 10, that's a thousand pounds worth of kit you've left on your bike, um, and even if it doesn't, the battery on your phone just doesn't last for very long um, when you're using it for navigation because it's using all this data and using a big screen all the time, um, which which we don't do. Um, so, so yeah, there's there's, there's always going to be people who do that, and I think that's great if you can use your phone for multiple purposes. Um, but we found there's enough of a reason to make something different, um, kind of specifically for this purpose product. Mm -hmm. Neil's point of the device being kind of for casual consumption and maybe not necessarily for ongoing continuous use is, is interesting. Like uh, once you know where you're heading, normally you will probably remember it and not having to check all of the time. Do you find uh, from your access to data about how people use this device, any hint as to whether people might start using it and then kind of put it away or bring it back up after a few months? Or, or is it something that people tend to use 
kind of on an ongoing way? Well, there's always going to be a percentage of users who, who use an item once and then never do it. But uh, we found that quite a lot of people like using it for different kind of journeys and just more casual exploratory uh, journeys. So, for example, in a, in a new city, people will use it when they don't know exactly where they're going or just want to have a wander around in a, a low-pressure way but still know overall where they're heading. So there are still use cases, even if it's not necessarily a commuter product. It, it still has a lot more casual uh, use cases anyway. Hmm. And it's something that's um, it's a challenge for us as the, as the company, Beeline, um, to make it something that people want to use more and more of the time. Um, so right now, all of these casual use cases or when you're new to a commute, um, it's great for that. Um, but we can, through you know, things that we're always looking at, things that we can update through, just app updates, really. Um, how, how could we make this something that is, I don't know, it's like a game to see how, mm -hmm. um, how, many, how fast you've done your commute or how many, how many different roads you've taken, how many different routes you've taken that week and how far you've explored. Um, these are just kind of the little ideas that we can do to try and nudge people to want to use it more. Yeah, I believe there's an odometer on there as well, so something which will track the distance which you've cycled over time. So this is something which kind of brings you back to using the device to see if you can um, you know, improve your statistics, you can go further distances, or you can, uh, as you say, gamify it in a way to get people yeah. to, to um, use the device more regularly rather than just for one single purpose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, for example, if we were to then connect that up with one of your colleagues at work who had one as well, and you could get you know competitive about who had ridden to work more that week or something i don't know just the who's done it quickest ideas. yeah <laughs> we've also got the the strava integration as well which means that people who are more fitness oriented might want to use beeline for their journeys as well so having more integrations with different software platforms that people already use might be interesting as well and i guess it's an opportunity for the app uh, that you provide attached to the device uh, to continue grow and make kind of the device more useful potentially in the future. Yeah, exactly. So we have the ability to update the firmware of all of the devices so we can add additional functionality as and when people ask for things as well. Um, obviously within reason, but um, we can add additional features. We can change UI elements. Um, there's a lot of scope for extending the product after you've bought one as well. And uh, this is, device is part of you know an, an increasing ecosystem of that people refer to as the internet of things uh, or we just talk in terms of more and more gadgets in our pockets all of the time uh, there's clearly uh, some consideration around uh, sustainability of you know the cost of bringing a new device uh, to the world and even though of course you have you're trying to potentially support cyclists cycling even more than they did, or some people lose their fear uh, associated with cycling. But have you done much work on the actual environmental sustainability associated with uh, sourcing the components, the design of the product, and, um, and creating a product that's as sustainable, so to say, as possible? Um, so we find it's quite hard to actually work out on a component-by-component component level exactly what the environmental costs are. Uh, we're lucky in that our product is physically quite small, so the, the energy cost associated with shipping it around the world is relatively low. Actually, it's comparable to the, the journeys that it takes for us to go to, the to China, where it's manufactured. Um, the environmental cost of that is actually not as substantial as it might be for heavier, larger goods. 
Um, but on a component by component level, it's quite hard to work out the exact cost of the device. Um, separately to that, we've also got the, the running costs of running servers. Um, we don't actually run too many servers. We can run our entire app on just essentially two or three servers worth. Um, so the ongoing costs to run the device are not particularly high. Um, and then the last thing, obviously, we need to think about is end of life of the product as well, in that once people have finished using it, how is it then disposed of responsibly as well? So there are a lot of different areas that we would need to consider, and it's quite difficult to cover all of those areas as quite a small startup still, as a team of just nine people at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess one of the questions uh, that we ask ourselves, you know, like, how would you be able as a small uh, new player in a very competitive hardware ecosystem to source uh, components uh, and to work with suppliers and factories in, in China in a way that uh, environmental considerations are taken into account. Uh, I imagine from what you said that this wasn't necessarily possible within the first uh, um, edition of this product, but do you see the opportunity to increase your work in this area? Um, we're quite lucky, actually, in that we have uh, a contact in China who handles quite a lot of the operations over there. So we don't have to fly over to China as frequently as other companies might have to. But yeah, there are definitely lots of opportunities for us to, to improve that in future, um, looking at different suppliers, working out exactly what the costs associated with different components are and evaluating that as part of the, the early design stages, especially if we're doing a higher volume item in the future. It's something that we'd need to think about more and more as you know, as quantities increase. Obviously, it multiplies by the number of products that you're producing. So it becomes more and more important the more we do. Hmm. I think there's there's probably some parts of that work that are harder to to control, like your processor chips and things like that. But then there are bits that are really obvious, like packaging, for example. Um, you know, by not putting enormous plastic boxes around. Um, this product and trying to make it compact for the air freight and using paper and cardboard instead of plastic and shrink wrap. Um, things like that are the, the much more obvious things we can do and that we do do at the moment. Mm. That was another thing which stood out at me when I received the device was that it was just quite nice basic cardboard packaging. It wasn't wrapped in plastic. It was There's obviously been some thought gone into the, the design, of even the packaging itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it puts your device in this... Uh, line of products that try to at least minimize where possible uh, even through their appearance at times from what I understand small manufacturers end up in trouble uh, because making mistakes with packaging and result this resulting in losing some proportion of the original mm. products yeah yeah maybe I, I mean certainly for us with our target audience being people who ride bikes which there's a very strong overlap there with people who care about the environment and uh, eco-friendly um we wouldn't be doing ourselves many any favors as a business if we were you know had really e environmentally unfriendly packaging as well of course you're listening to restart radio on resonance 104.4 fm and this week we're talking about a smart compass uh, from london startup beeline and uh, we were originally uh, very attracted by uh, some of your own thoughts about the importance of repair and repairability and the role that this has 
within your uh, design of future versions of this product. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So um, all of the returns that we've had back from customers are sent directly back to us here in London. Um, and I've actually looked at nearly all of our customer returns so far and worked out for each case exactly what's gone wrong, why has it gone wrong, and what can we do in future versions of the hardware to stop those happening. So one of the major issues we found was that there was a, a soldering uh, fault on some of the chips that were coming out of the factory. Um, and in a, a very small percentage of cases, it found, we found that in shipping, the, the temperature changes meant that that solder joint eventually failed. So we've since redesigned the section of the PCB that had that. We've redesigned the footprint of that chip so that the soldering reliability improved. So our second batch now has improvements with that that has reduced the, the rate of that error happening. Um, uh, other issues we found are water damage, for example. So obviously we can't stop water getting in in all of the cases, but from looking at ones that we've had back and returned and worked out uh, where the water is damaged, we can then, in future versions, move, move components away. For example, the edge of the PCB is likely to get water on it. So by moving components in from the edge of the PCB, we can reduce the number of devices that fail as a result of that. So from looking at what's gone wrong, we can inform future design decisions as well and improve reliability and obviously then decrease electronic waste as well, which can only be a good thing. Yeah, this is a very interesting concept. So the fact that every single product goes back to the you as the manufacturer mm. means that you are increasingly having a bank of very interesting data about, about your work. And do you see specific trends about like some faults being uh, definitely more recurrent uh, than others or and a variety of like long tail of small mm. problems that are not necessarily uh, fitting in specific categories of mm. issues. Yeah, that's quite right. So about half of the ones we found so far had the, the soldering fault. Um, about a quarter of them have had uh, water damage of some sort. And then after that, there's just a long tail of uh, much more minor issues that are scattered around in different areas of the board. So yeah, you're, you're exactly right in the distribution there. Mm. We should make it clear that it's a uh, it's got a small chunk of the products that have ever gone out that have come back. It's a small exactly. sample group. Yep. So um, it's about one percent of them have, have have ever come back, isn't it? It's, it's less than that. I think it's point one percent. Is it? Yeah, I should be able to do my maths. That's great. Well, <laughs> and you have approximately ten thousand of them out exactly. in the wild. Yeah. Okay. But one of the other interesting things linked to that is that basically, from what I understand, the in in an attempt to improve the customer experience you give people a brand new device uh if their device fails in in to an extent um unless the users cause the damage themselves we'll send a, a new unit but if if someone breaks the screen and it's their fault we can send a refurbished unit instead but generally we'll send a new replacement yes and what happens to the devices uh, uh that come back to you uh for repair so most of them at the moment become press demos or testing units that we use around the office. Uh, we don't send them out to customers again at the moment. So you repair all of them? Yeah, exactly. And mm. then we've got a box in the office with about 20 beelines at the moment. Great. And did a, having witnessed a, situations where a manufacturer, obviously of a very different scale, um, when contacted for, say, a faulty toaster, um, 
actually just sends you another one but tells you to just recycle it mm -hmm. without being able to provide even any feedback about what went wrong if it was within warranty mm -hmm. uh, this seems to to me like a much more promising uh, scenario where we can actually all collectively learn uh, from what goes wrong uh, i guess it will probably potentially be even more interested in if the manufacturing, the factory itself was able to learn on of mm. what was the problem with soldering. But if you can alter the design, it it almost feel, feels like this should be a value that you more uh, that you shout about, like in, in yeah. your website, because it's not very common in my experience that companies would do this on an ongoing basis. Yeah, yeah, maybe we should. And, um, and it's definitely, you know, in the long term, it's win-win-win for everybody because you know, we don't want to have products coming back because it costs us money. Um, obviously, for the customer, from the customer's point of view, the more reliable it is, the better. Um, and from an environmental impact point of view, if they're not being wasted and thrown away, um, then that's great as well. So um, all of the, you know, exactly what Charlie was talking about, even with our first batch, what we've learned and improved on um, from there is already having a really positive impact. Um, on all three areas there. Um, so, yeah, these guys should be getting their toasters back for sure. Uh, the other area that uh, we're more and more concerned about is actually the software support to this ever-expanding ecosystem of products. And uh, Neil and I have been discussing quite a bit about what if or when uh, a product stops being supported um, what what is the risk that you know you might buy uh, a, a beeline compass and then you don't end up upgrading your phone to the latest and the greatest and for some reason software uh, support gets dropped and i was wondering if this is something that uh, is a concern for you um charlie can talk a bit more about exactly how far back we support um but we at the moment we do so back as far as is kind of reasonably, um, you know, I think anybody could reasonably expect us to. And, and that if you probably, if you had a phone that was older than that, it's unlikely you'd be buying gadgets for your bicycle, um, I would I would have thought. Yeah. yeah. So on the app side of things, we can support all the way back to the, the iPhone 4S, I think running iOS 9, but I'm not sure. I'm more of an Android user myself, but um, we can support all the way back to that because the, the hardware supports it. Um, we might find that the app is a little bit slower on older devices, but the functionality should all be there. And on Android, we'll essentially work on almost any device that has Bluetooth low energy. Um, so the iPhones we're quite lucky with in that it's a, a limited number of devices, so we can actually test on nearly every device. But on Android, there are far more devices out there, so it's impossible to test on them all. And we found that on some much older, uh, on much older Android devices, we have some occasional reliability issues with Bluetooth. But on the whole, we found that it's supported on quite a wide range of phones. Uh, the reason we asked the, uh, this question is also because there's been uh, recently in the news uh, how apps such as uh, Pokemon Go and WhatsApp are dropping support for, in the case of WhatsApp, for very old iPhones, the iPhone 4. And however, mm -hmm. like a volunteer of ours got in touch and say, look, I'm still using my iPhone 4 and it's fine for what I need. And now because of what's up, I will mm. need to look for an alternative. Um, and in the case of Pokemon Go, they're really pushing the um, 
augmented reality uh, part, which means that all iPhones prior to the 5S, if I'm not wrong, will no longer be supported uh, shortly. It, it is an issue where, in a sense, software development ends up being a factor of obsolescence, and it's something quite dear to, to our <laughs> uh, hearts. So obviously, it's different considerations apply in the case of your device. Yeah, so it's definitely a difficult situation. I can understand that Pokemon Go, for example, need more processing power or a more modern software framework to work with, but we're quite lucky in that our functionality is relatively simple at its core. There aren't many tasks that require a massive amount of processing or require any particularly modern APIs. The only thing that we do really rely on is the Bluetooth low energy support, and that's why we can support quite a wide range of devices, because we don't have um, any other really significant functionality that needs a more modern operating system. I can understand it's difficult, but we're quite fortunate in that we don't need any of those newer APIs. I think it's. Uh, I think it speaks to the to the ethos of the company that you know keeping the level of software support going quite far back is is very cool. I mean to go back to uh, Android four point four is pretty good, um, and I think as well from what I understand, there's there's you also maintain the firmware for the device yourselves, um, which I think is very interesting as uh, sometimes you can uh, have obsolescence through going back through the supply chain for certain components, for example. Um, for example, if whoever's providing particular components, they're not providing updates to the firmware, then maybe there's an issue further upstream uh, for the actual uh, device itself. So if you've got some kind of control over the development of the, the firmware, then that's another way in which you can kind of extend the longevity of the device. And so I, I believe that's right, that you do um, work on the firmware yourselves as well. Yeah, that's right. So all the firmware development's been done in-house. We rely on the software stack provided by the chip manufacturer for the, the Bluetooth low-level code, but everything at a higher level is completely controlled by us. So we can deploy firmware updates, we can add new functionality. Um, and because the Bluetooth stack and the Bluetooth protocol doesn't change, we can, we're reasonably happy that we can just lock in that one version of the chip with one software stack and not need to update that because we know all of the functionality we need for the product is already there. We, we're not so worried about um, obsolescence in that sense anyway. And, and you've been uh, one of the successful cases of crowdfunded uh, projects on uh, uh, Kickstarter. And we see uh, all of the time uh, new projects coming up on this and other platforms, not necessarily very clear uh, at the time when they're collecting uh, support on the longevity of a project or any terms of the software and hardware support. Mm. Um, from what I understand, you didn't make any bold claims back then, but do you see any scope for actually trying to push the bar a bit higher and trying to work as startups to uh, adopt devices for a longer period of time by default? Yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, we weren't explicit about that sort of stuff uh, during the Kickstarter campaign. We did imply it with... Um, by talking about how all this can continue to evolve and the sort of features that might happen in the future based on customer feedback. And so all this thing about being able to update the firmware is, is really exciting for us because it means that somebody can buy a product and it can be keeps on getting better over the next six months or a year rather than worse. Um, but I do think that it's 
um, to to ask people who are going out on these crowdfunding campaigns to promise more at that point. Um, you know, all too often the problem, the reason they fail is because they've overpromised already. Um, and you know, it's as you say, we're one of the the lucky few that have kind of got through to the to the other side of getting into full manufacture. Um, it might be asking a bit much to say at that at that point for people to to be promising even more. Um, but I certainly think as we as these companies get to slightly more mature stages as we're getting to now, um, yeah, um, that's a good thing for us to try and push ourselves to do. And a uh, uh, very question that I shouldn't dare to ask, but what yeah. if uh, you didn't exist anymore? Uh, would Beeline as the product continue to be usable if you didn't have a server behind it? Could it be used by people even if you didn't exist anymore? So at the moment, our account system is tied into our servers. So you would, we'd have to patch out the account system from the apps. Um, and certain functionality just depends on having a server, like sure. syncing your routes from one device to another device and having a backup of your routes that you've taken. But it wouldn't be too bad to patch out the parts that depend on a server to allow people to continue in the future. Okay. Um, obviously, there are some other issues that we'd have to think about, like the, the intellectual property. So, for example, if a company is bought rather than um, uh, goes out of business, it's potentially difficult to, to guarantee anything. But okay, but it is possible at least. Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining us on the show. Uh, this is all we have time for for today. We have a one restart party happening this Sunday at the Good Life Center uh, between 2 and 5 p.m. here in Sadok. And more online at the restartproject.org. Thank <laughs> you.